Welcome to Mike Moments, your source for info from the minds behind the music. I'm Delmar Brown with any listen, folks. This interview I'm about to bring to your ears only from a gentleman who doesn't need an introduction because he has chops. He can sing. But he's a brother from another mother. He's always respected me from the time that I was a teenager. And the amazing part about him is a couple of things. He's had a number one. He's had a number two. He's had five songs in the top 20 in his career. He's been on an independent label. He's also been on a major label. He's done dance music. What more can I say? I'm just going to call him by the name of the train that we ride sometimes, D-Train. My man James, D-Train Williams. What's up, brother? What's up, man? How you doing? Listen, it's all good, man. I mean, listen, you and I always meet. The last time we saw each other, I was on my way to work. You was on your way to the Today Show, getting ready to do some background vocals. For, I mean, for, for something. I mean, what was that about? Uh, the Today Show that we did, I was working with Queen Latifah. Mm-hmm. It was the morning show, and um, she was doing her new album, California Dreaming. Right. So it was myself, Tawatha A.G., uh, and Vanice Thomas, mm-hmm. singing with her outdoors. With, and that was the first time I'd ever done the Today Show, man. I was like... Man, this is some early in the morning stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Crust still in your eyes oh, and okay. kind of thing. But it was wonderful. I mean, I've done just about every television network show in New York. Uh, but it was an honor working with Queen Latifah because she told me a story. I had her on my old radio show when I used to be at Sirius Radio. Right. And she said, when I was in junior high school, my mother did a banner of your song, mm. Keep On. Mm-hmm on career day and brought it to school and we put it up on the wall. She said, just keep doing what you're doing because you're a big part of my life. And I was like, wow, that that was deep to me. And it, it meant a lot, you know, coming from Queen Latifah because she's achieved so much. You know, she's you always, you're always going to hear about her doing something. If it's not a movie, it's a TV show. If it's not a TV show, she's producing something. She's behind the scenes, in front of the scenes. Exactly. And I just love the way she flows, man. Got to love that. Let's take it back. I couldn't do it without taking it back to our days when we grew oh, up. Yeah. We went to Erasmus together. Mm-hmm. You was playing this game called football. And you was doing <laughs> your thing as a defensive tackle. What was it like being in Erasmus Hall? Erasmus, man, was just a creative source. I mean, we had Miss Fleischer. We had Miss Greenberg in art. And Mr. Mr. Bongiorno for English. <laughs> so it was all these crazy people. And they had to deal with all these young African-American kids. There was like maybe two white kids in the whole school, I think Miriam and her brother Rob, that were in all the plays and stuff. But um, it was wonderful because for me as an artist, I, I was in the art school, and uh, and then Will Downing dragged me down into the to the uh, chapel one day with Joseph Williams right. and started saying, "Well, Dee, why don't you sing, man?" And he got me to the art side of it and got me to do the South Pacific. Yes, and you know it's funny that you mentioned that because the funny part about it, okay, you was known for the football thing. Then I happened to go here and see the South Pacific going on, right? And I go and see you you on the play singing. I'm like, "Nah, stop!" I said. Look at Detroit singing, but you actually can sing. Thank you, man. You know what was weird? I was dating Deborah Francis at the time, (laughs) and I had to get. There's a scene in there where I had to dress up with a blonde wig, lipstick, eyelashes, and a grass skirt and coconuts for a bra. Mm -hmm. Being the defensive captain of the football team, (laughs) 
and doing that, Adelmo, yeah, it was just deep and strange, but it was a lot of fun because, you know, I'm crazy. And so, you know, after that, all she kept saying to me for the rest of my senior year, nice legs. <laughs> nice <Wow>. legs. <laughs> That's hilarious stuff. Now, we're going to take it back a little bit. Now, you remember when Soul Alive was on? Oh, yeah. And you had the club show. Now, we was always into that R&B, which yep. was, I guess, the offspring that led to house. Mm -hmm. Now, we're moving forward to Prelude Records, right? We're going to take it to there and find out about how did that deal come up? Because, I mean, it was funny. I happened to, of course, I was, you know, I was doing the DJ thing, and I happened to, like, go in the store, and I saw you on this album. I'm like, what? I said, he didn't let me know about this because... You did let me get to hang out with you, and I really appreciate it because nobody else wanted me to hang out with you, but you brought me in. I mean, right. you said, no, nah, that's my little brother, man. You, you, he gets to hang out. So how did the Prelude's record thing come along? Well, you know, it was really strange. I was in my first year at Brooklyn College. Will was in his senior year at Erasmus. So one day I get a call from Will, and he's like, D, man. I said, what? He goes, man, I'm doing song demos, and I'm writing. At the time, I didn't know he was writing for Melba Moore and different people. Um, and he said, I'm, I'm getting ready to put out this song demo called The Real Deal. Okay. <laughs> He'll kill me if he heard this. Yeah. But, and I went to Sound Lab Studios in Brooklyn on Sheepshead Bay Road and East 14th Street right. and Avenue Z. And I met Peter DiOrio and Mike Potash, and I was singing backgrounds on this song. Uh -huh. So I'm singing backgrounds, and Will was like, come on, D, give me something else. You know, you got that church thing, man. You up in the church. Give me this, you know some church stuff and some ad libs. So at the time, I was really into Larry Graham because he had just be my lady, yeah, you know? And the stuff he had did with Sly Stone, man. So I said, whoa, And Will was like, yeah. And Hubert Eves was producing the project for him, but I couldn't right. see him behind the glass. And he was eating Chinese food. And I did that, and he went, oh, wait a minute. And he put his food down. So he was, Hubert is a very cool dude. He's from the Midwest, Minneapolis. Right. And uh, St. Paul's, I'm sorry, St. Paul's, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So he puts down his Chinese food, and then all of a sudden, he's very cool. After I finished doing my background vocals, I didn't even get paid for the session, I don't think. I think right. Will might have had $5 and some pizza. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Give me some beef patty or cocoa bread. Or right. I can't remember, but... And then afterwards, he said, well, listen, man, I'd, I'd like your number. I said, oh, okay, sure. So I give Hubert my number, and I, I, you know, I give Will a pound. I'm like, okay, I'm out the door, back on the train, back headed back to the hood, man. Will would call me up later on that night. Yo, D, yo, this guy's freaking out over you. I was like, really? He said, yeah. He wants you to come to his house tomorrow. He lives on Madison. He lives on Jefferson between Madison, between Patchogg and Ralph. Mm -hmm. Hubert lived at 584 Jefferson. And I called myself going over there the next afternoon, which happened to be a Saturday. Mm. And we sat down. He said, man, I love what you did in the studio yesterday. Still being real cool. Uh, I got this track, man, I'm working on, and I would love to see what you come up for it. I said, okay, sure. Let me let me hear it. And it was like, so he starts playing it, and I'm like, hmm. Okay, let me see. He said, I only got this chorus. I said, what's the chorus? He goes, I'll stand up on the cloud and shout out loud. You're the one for me. I said, oh, that's nice, man. So I, and then I started hearing things in my head, and I said, oh, shoot, give me a pad, man. Give me a pad. So he gave me a pad, and I wrote, with this to love I found, takes my feet up off the ground. You know, and I started writing verses. We wrote, you're the one for me, 
within 20 minutes and put it down in his eight track quarter inch IPS tape out wow. reel to reel studio and uh and that was it and then he fixed it up and then we went in the sound lab and we recorded it at sound lab studio no session fees no nothing because wow. uh, he wanted me to sign to his production company mm -hmm. which I did and um and the next thing I know he kept coming back with disappointing news well Columbia Records turned us down well, Capitol Records said you can't sing. Go get some girls. I mean, every week we got to update the report. Most record labels said I suck. <laughs> I girls, swear to you. If you listen to You're the One for Me, every label at the time and every label executive said, he can't sing. Get some girls. Sounds too churchy. You need to soften them up a little bit. Doesn't sound right. I mean, they became the experts. Okay. He took it to 57th Street to Prelude Records, which happened to be the hottest label at the time. Mm -hmm. It had Franz Jolie, Gail Adams, yes. Jeanette Lady Day, the Strikers, the Nick Striker Band, you know, all of that stuff. Jocelyn Brown got signed later on. And Marvin Schlachter saw something there. And he said, man, I'd love to sign you guys. And we did the single. We released the single. We took the acetates over to Paradise Garage, to Larry LeVan. Yes. And... Uh, Larry put it on, and that was it. When he put that record on the club, I never seen anything like that. It was like looking at, you know, when you're in church and folks get the Holy Ghost, and they start jumping up and down. Exactly. It's like at the Paradise Garage, all the gay dudes were, oh, my God, oh, child. And they were going at it, devil. And it was like the whole dance floor went whoosh, like a vacuum. Exactly. And uh, Larry's like, I'm playing this every five minutes. And he just, he played the thing to wore out. We had to keep sending him. You're the one for me. And then uh, we did Keep On that Friday. Uh, the following week we wrote Keep On. And then Hubert said, I hear the song in my head. I see it on the ceiling. I said, what are you talking about? He had heard a version of Walk On By in his mindset the way he would do it. Yes. And thus was the result of Walk On By. Well, that's interesting because I do remember that performance at the yeah. Paradise Garage. Yeah. You shouted me out on stage. Yeah, And it was kind of crazy because, I mean, when you said Delmar, everybody looking at me all kind of crazy. And I'm like, <laughs> I'll never forget that performance. And the interesting thing about that, of course, when the album came out, it was more, I would say, more of like a rough draft of what you had to present. Only because when the 12-inch singles came out, you had all the remixes. And thanks, courtesy to my man, Mr. Francois K. Yeah. This is when that... You're the one for me. Reprise came out. Right now, that version was bananas. Oh yeah, it was like three minutes of plush. Oh yeah, coming out. Oh yeah, and I um, mean that did something for you. Francois Kavorkin was a very integral part of our beginnings, because after the the twelve inch came out, you know Hubert needed remixes, and he before he could present it to radio, the club and the ground swells always back in the day started at college radio in the clubs. Right. Once the buzz got out in the street, then radio was like, well, who's that? Right. And when You're the One for Me hit the clubs, it was like a firestorm. Wow. Frankie Crocker got wind of it. And uh, so we had Francois come in, rather Hubert went and found Francois, got him in the studio, and Francois did the remixes, and it came out great, and it was mastered by Herb Powers, yes, the man himself, and once they were all out there, I'll never forget my first time hearing it on the radio. We're driving down Atlantic Avenue, and we hit Nostrand. And we're going into the city to go to Prelude. Frankie's playing the B-side. I'm like, you took my vocals out? 
why would you take my voice on the road? How can I be Detroit if you take it? I didn't know about remixes, yeah, yeah. D, you know what I mean? So, and then I hear it, and I'm like, oh, man, he don't like my voice either. You know, because I'd heard so much rejection. Yes. And then next thing, he played the regular side. And I said, oh, God, thank God he likes it. Right. And from then on, every club in New York, I think every club, in Staten Island, the Italians, black, Puerto Rican, Latino, everybody just gravitated to D-Train like a vacuum. My first huge gig was at Bonds International oh, wow. with Mike Stone. Yes. And I, it was the first time that I had ever been in a club and seen things go on like that because, again, I'm a church boy. I never seen two dudes oiling each other down in the back that would dance. I was like, why are they doing that? <laughs> Everybody's like, D, just relax, man. This is where it's done in the clubs, you know. And we had a great time. Um, I mean, I loved Bonds International. I loved walking up on 45th Street up that back spiral staircase, the nostalgia, the big blimp in the room. You don't have things like that anymore. You don't have clubs like that. And people came in, and yeah, there were people that did drugs, and there were people that drank too much and had to get put outside. But at the end of the night, D, everybody lived. And those of us that might have had a few beers, everybody went down to the West Village, and went and got pancakes in the morning at 4 o'clock in the exactly. diner and went home. D got on the train, slept till they got to they stopped and went home. That's what clubbing was back in the day. It wasn't about you bumped into me. I'm going to pull out my gun. I'll wait for you outside. It wasn't that type of life, man. Wow, amazing. Yeah. Let's talk about your first appearance on Soul Train. Mm, first appearance on Soul Train was wonderful. Prelude put me up at the Beverly Hilton. I had never seen such luxury in my life. I'm a kid from Brooklyn, and I had never been outside of New York. Going to Los Angeles, I was like, wow, this is really cool. The palm trees and everything, you know? And we stayed at the Beverly Hilton, and when we got there, I'll never forget this. I saw like six Rolls Royces in different colors. And that kind of freaked me out. A Rolls Royce Cornish convertible, a Rolls Royce, you know? And, and it was like, I, I looked at somebody, and I said, whose Rolls Royces are these? They said, they belong to Don Cornelius. He has a different color one for every day of the week. I was like, wait a minute. You mean the dude we see on TV got like six Rolls Royces parked at the Beverly Hills? He says, this is where he keeps some of them. Man, D, and we go inside, and we get over to West Hollywood where they were taping at the time. And uh, I went inside. I saw Jeffrey Daniels and those guys, and all the dancers are just standing there. And it almost looked like people trying to get into a show because they have a little small audience area. But the way they recruit their dancers, they get them off the street. Mm -hmm. People come and audition. They don't even audition. They just get in there and just start doing their moves. Right. If they like them, they keep them. If they don't like them, they just, you get outside. You know, <laughs> it ain't like you're getting paid. Because exactly. they just did it so they can be on television. And Don Cornelius had me and Hubert in and for the life of him. And I've done Soul Train. I'm probably one of the only person that's done Soul Train five times in two countries. Wow. I did it four times in L.A. with Don Cornelius. And then the last time I did it was in London, England with Jeffrey Daniels mm -hmm. when he hosted the U.K. version of Soul Train. Um, by that time, um, what's his name? Um, the one that's on CIS, NCIS, um, mm -hmm. the light-skinned brother. Oh, Lamar. I can't think of his name. But he's the one that was hosting Soul Train right. for a while. Right. And um, But the first time, Don could not say D-Train. Right. And I'm sitting up there, and, and they would laugh at him, the dancers, because he'd go, 
Here's an earthy brother with one of the earthiest voices from New York. <laughs> What's his name again? Okay, <laughs> cue cards. <laughs> and it was it was weird, Devil. I was like, and me and Hugh standing on the stage waiting to go, and it was like, they had to do four takes, man, for him to actually say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Soul Train, a G train. By the fourth one, he got it. And the music was in, and it was on and popping. The, uh, the first album did great in L.A. Second album, music, blew up in Europe. Because Marvin and them, with the success of the first album, we were getting sent platinum reels. That record sold millions of copies. It went number one in four different countries. So the lie that they told us was, man, it only sold 65,000 copies between singles, 12 inches, and cassettes. That's all we got in terms of money. I knew they were lying. And then I went on the road with Joey Bonner to do a promotional tour. Uh -huh. We pulling up in Philadelphia, and this big red Cadillac pulls up on the side street behind us, and Joey's taking boxes out and putting them in the back of the Cadillac. Wow. I didn't know those were the boxes of music that they were going to sell on the black market, <laughs> including mine. Really? So I was like, damn, what's up? You know, 21 years old. I don't know no better, D. Wow. And uh, I was getting ready to go see Butterball. Mm -hmm. Down in Philadelphia, man. And um, you learn as you go along, man, that, you know, it wasn't all that it was cooped up to be. So by the third album, Something's On Your Mind crossed over to the pop charts, made it to top five. Mm -hmm. Huge record. Right. I'm thinking, okay, they're going to pay us this time. They, they have to pay us this time. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. And they didn't have any money. So it was like, I said, Hubert, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not giving them anymore. And Hubert was like, you know what? I'm with you. And we were out. So they said, well, you got to give us one more single. And we gave them, we didn't even like the single, Just Another Night Without Your Love. We just, we just wrote it off the cuff. It was probably something that we had in the tank. Mm -hmm. And we just gave it to them. And they put it out. And, um, and we moved on. And then we went to Columbia Records with Cecil Holmes, uh, my manager at the time. I had changed managers from Jack Walker to Tom Hoover, who used to be the road manager for Richard Pryor. Mm -hmm. And Tom got us the deal at Columbia Records. And then uh, along with getting us a production deal where Hubert and I were equals at this point, mm -hmm. he also got me a publishing deal with Erwin Robinson at Chapel Music, mm -hmm. which was both very nice money. So that was when I bought my second house in, in uh, Long Island, a bigger house, and moved my wife and kids at the time into it. And it was a really good time. But I didn't know that. I kept thinking, I'm on a major label. They got me here. I'm good. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Wow. Because the promotional staff at the independent label works 10 times as hard as the one that's in the machine. The machine doesn't work as hard because they got so many people. And if you got 50 people trying to work one Delmar Brown record, right. it's like, I'll call it 12. Oh, I got to get my nails done at oh, one. Wow. It was like that. Um, Margaret House and them, they worked extremely hard. Uh, Eddie Pugh and those people up at Columbia, mm -hmm. they worked great hard. But the people in the field and in the office worked hard. Ruben Rodriguez was the type of person that if you threw it up against the wall and it stuck, he'd go after it. If it didn't stick right away, he'd take something else out the box and throw that up against the wall. If that stuck, then he went after it. So in our first outing with Columbia Records, you know, we put out Miracles of the Heart. Misunderstanding comes out, radio's on it. I made it to top five in radio airplay. Yes. Around the country, 
at Christmas time. The record came out in September. By Christmas, it was top five, and it made it up to three behind Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel. Really? I'm saying we're going to number one. I'm just knowing we're going to number one. Ruben pulls the record. He pulled the entire album. And he meets me at the BRE and goes, we'll get it on the next one. And I didn't understand what that meant. That meant I'm pulling your shit off the shelves. Excuse me. I, that's pulling, I'm so pulling, I'm, we pulling your shit off the shelves. And, you're it and that's, that's, that's the way it's going down. And I was like, what does he mean he really, he's getting it on the next one? Because people didn't understand where we recorded our albums at was out in Sheepshead Bay on Avenue Z. If you're from Brooklyn, you knew Brooklyn was segregated right. like a mug. Of course. And we could only buy, we had to order out food after 6 o'clock because all the white people were home. Of course. And it was all Italian mob cats. Regular Italian folks, but mostly a lot of Italian mob cats. Especially over there, Nose from Emmons Avenue. You got that Bensonhurst mixed yes. up in there and... You just didn't go out after six. Yes. So we went back in the studio for almost another year, and we literally moved everything. I moved everything out of my home studio. Mm -hmm. Hubert moved everything out of his home studio into Sound Lab. We, got, we stayed in my engineer Peter DiOrio's house across the street. We, stayed, we slept in his daughter's bedroom, you know, and they put two cots in there for us, and we would work all day. We started 10 in the morning. We didn't end until 10 at night. 10 at night, we come across the street, sleep, get up, go back across the street, get some breakfast, mm -hmm. start all over again. Um, but we did that for like about three months. Mm. And what happened was at the end of three months, my ex-wife came to pick me up. Right. And, oh, excuse me, we're standing. They had those long steps where you got to walk up, yes. like, you know, out there in Canarsie. Peter lived on the second level. I go in, we say thank you to his wife. We say thank you to him and everything. And Hubert's wife came and picked him up and they were gone. I go inside with my wife and we say our goodbyes. I come back outside Delmar. There are two dozen eggs on my car. Two dozen eggs. On, I'm talking about it didn't even look like my car. And I was like, what the hell just happened? And the dude is standing on the steps right next door to his house with an apron on. Smoking a cigarette, and the eggs is at his feet like, yeah, I did it, and what? And I was like, oh, man. So I was getting ready to say something, and Peter ran out the door, D, 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 D. I got to live here. Please don't say nothing. Don't say anything to these guys. You don't know who these people are. And I was like, well, who are they people? He said they're Russian mob. And that was when the Russian mob started coming into that area and started taking over things. And so what happened was, I didn't say nothing. He gave me money. He said, here's some money. Go get your car wash. There's a car wash on Utica Avenue. So I took um, uh, Shore Parkway down to Utica and cut across, and then I got my car washed so I can see out the windows to get, get home. Yeah, I lived in Long Island. But I never went back in that neighborhood again, man. Uh, it was just too racist. It was just racist all the way up into the 90s, man. And Bensonhurst... I'm not saying it is as racist now because you have a large influx of Asian and East Indian people in Bensonhurst. So even in out there in Sheepshead Bay, it's right. changed. The demographics has changed since Brooklyn has become gentrified. Mm -hmm. Every all the white kids and a lot of white people from Connecticut and you know upstate and Westchester have moved to Brooklyn. You know Prospect Park, uh, all of that, Nostrand Avenue, 
and Fulton Street is blonde hair, blue eyed territory. Okay. You think you was in Germany, if you <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's weird for me to see all of these white people walking past the KFC down there, no shit in Fulton. It freaks me out, but it's like it's not a bad thing, but it's just like, wow, you know, it's changed. The Barclay Center. All of that stuff. Those areas where you wouldn't walk into, like Fourth Avenue when we were kids, man. You didn't get after juniors. You didn't walk down Fulton Street down there all the way back home. No, man, it was dangerous. And that was when Fulton Street was a two-way street, and then they changed it to one way, and then they made it two-way again. But I think what I learned over the years in the, in this music industry is that even though you get to the next level, I said all that to say this: Columbia became a big machine and a big disappointment. Right. Because everything I thought it was gonna be, it wasn't. It was like somebody stuck a pin inside of me and said And so what happened was, in my life, when God closes one door, he opens up another one. Yes. And when I left Columbia Records um, in 88, I started doing jingles. I started doing television and radio jingles. Um, And after I started doing television and radio jingles, man, it was wonderful. A friend of mine met me up on street, Bill Eaton, and says, yo, D, I got this Budweiser commercial. He said, are you D-Train? I said, ah, yeah. You know, that was the time my popularity was still out there where people would stop me on the street. And he's like, are you D-Train? I said, yeah. He goes, man, I've been looking for you for a minute. But I wasn't about to deal with your crazy manager. I said, oh, okay, because Tom was known as being the enforcer. Mm-hmm. So he said, I got this session I'd like for you to do, and so and so and so. I said, okay. So I went down to the studio. And I did this Budweiser jingle with him and Deborah McDuffie, mm-hmm. who was uh, big with uh, Ennis Broadcast and that type of thing, mm-hmm. and, and Uniworld, who was the only black ad agency in New York. And she did a lot of her jingles primarily for Uniworld. Right. I did the Budweiser jingle, man, Delmar, it went final on radio. And for most people that don't know what final means, you get paid for the session like 150 bucks. But when it goes final, they send you a check for a couple of thousand bucks for the 13-week cycle that is going to be playing on every station across the country. So I was the first time I saw all these checks coming in the mail. I was like, whoa, this is five. Wait, wait, no. Okay, they're all the same thing. Somebody broke the machine. <laughs> so I call up Bill Eaton. I'm like, Bill, I'm sorry. They sent all these checks to my house. And they all have the same amount of it. And it's a lot of money, man. And I, I don't want to get in no trouble. And please, can you explain to me how this works? Should I send them back? He said, stupid. This is how the jingle business works. If you don't want them, you can send them to me. Wow. <laughs> so I said, oh, snap, you mean they're mine? He said, yes. So that was when I learned about the jingle business. And Debbie McDuffie, for the first two or three years in the jingle business, hired me every week. She had me, Dennis Collins, Daryl Tooks, and Curtis King in their work, and I, I built a camaraderie. I learned how to sing um, backgrounds and lead. Uh, I, you know, you learn backgrounds in the church, but all you learn is volume in the right. church. You don't learn diction. When you do advertising jingles, you have to learn diction because those people want to hear the touch, yes. the feel, the fabric of our lives. They don't want the touch, That's choir stuff. Okay. But when they hear, they want to hear the touch, the feel, they want diction. And uh, I learned how to be a quick read because from Debbie McDuffie, uh, my name expanded around the music industry, the jingle houses like Crushing Enterprises and JSM and, you know, New York Noise and, and so many others. And I wound up being one of one of the top lead singing 
jingle singers in New York from like, I'd say from 88 to 2000, mm -hmm. you know. I got called for a lot of work. The biggest commercial I probably had was, be all that you can be oh, in the okay. of me. And that was 24 television spots at the same time. Oh, oh Lord Jesus. I remember the checks. Hallelujah. <laughs> and you could tell the paper was definitely hot. Oh, the paper was nice. And it's interesting that you mentioned the year 2000 because this is when I noticed you taking another side. You got into this dance music thing. So you did something with Mr. Bob Sinclair. So let's talk about that. Yeah, you know what happened was, as the like I said, God closes one door, another one opens. The jingle business went on strike in 99 or 98, mm -hmm. um, fighting for cable rights. Because if you did a commercial and it went on to HBO or Showtime, they didn't pay residuals. They did a buyout. So they'd, pay, they'd send you a session check, $150, yes. and they'd play your commercial all summer long and make all the money, Showtime and HBO. Uh, SAG and AFTRA went after those companies saying, you got to pay these singers their rights. This, this goes into their health and pension. They're not doing this for free, and your network shouldn't have it for free. I understood what they were fighting for, even though it was a losing battle because the jingle houses didn't go in with us. They just kept working. They kept the machine going, and they were hiring people off the street to sing. And the companies just started diminishing the work because the talent wasn't as high. And so the, the business started dying. And so it kind of wiped out Jingle Singers in New York. And I get a call. I'd, I'd, by that time, from 88 on, I started doing gigs. What people didn't know, I started doing D-Train gigs in 87 in France, Paris, France. And they would call me once a year to go to Paris to do these shows. And I wasn't getting paid a lot, maybe 1500 bucks or something like that. And it was, it was good because it got you out of the country. Yes. And you got to see France. And they, they took care of you classy. And what happened was, after going there a few years, my name grew in Europe. And I started doing London and, and you know, different places like that, Amsterdam and Holland. And Bob Sinclair gave someone a call, and they called me, my, my European manager, Katrine Poisonin. He says, Bob would like you to do a song with him and wants you to come over and write. I said, okay, well, let's do it next month because I had a gig over there. Went over there, I did the show with Oliver Cheatham and Jocelyn Brown. Yes. And um, me and him hooked up afterwards, went to his studio with a guy called QTB, who's a producer over there. And we went to his studio and we did Darling. And what was happening was we didn't get to finish all the vocals while I was there. So we came back to New York. Uh, I was in New York, and then I get a call. Hey, James, I'm in New York. I'd like to do the lead vocals over again. No problem. And I need to do the backgrounds again. Okay. So we met in Jersey at a studio, and we did the whole song from Soup to Nuts over again. And what the results were was what you hear on the radio and what you see in the video. Then he called me up again. He's like, yo, D. I need you to come to France. We're shooting a video. I got the guy who did Janet Jackson's Miss You Much. Nice. I had to pay him half a mil, but hey, he's going to do my video. I said, okay, good. Go to France. We went to La Défense, which is a certain section of Paris. Ain't the sweetest area, but it's right where the arch, near the Arch de Triomphe is. Mm -hmm. And we shot the video on the roof. And they flew in 75 beautiful models from around the world. And... Um, it was a great video shoot, man. We had a good time, and I was out. I was, you know, hung out for a few days in France and went back home.
Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And it's funny, I was really pleased with your progression to go through the Travels of Prelude, to go through all the stuff you went through with Columbia, to see your name on Darling, because I had wondered what happened to you. So we fast forward, now you got internet now, and the connection with Bob Sinclair eventually led me to take a peek at you on YouTube, and I saw you do some background for Sarone. I mean, let's talk about Oh, that. yeah. That was interesting. Uh, Barbara Tucker called me into that, and she's like, D, Sarone would like you to do some background vocals and a duet with me on one of his records. And I had heard of Sarone. I wasn't, you know, because Supernature came out in the 70s, so yeah. by the time we came along, it was ladies' night. You know how it was, oh, then. Yeah, yeah. It was all yeah, ladies' man. night, man, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and Stevie B and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. When we was in Erasmus, and, you know, a super sperm, all that Yo, stuff, man. you know. Wow. Um, I remember William and Wayne, the twins, playing yes. that in that boombox. Shout on out the to the Holloways. Shout yeah. out to the Holloways. Yeah. Wendy, too. Yeah, Wendy, too. And so it was like, it was interesting, man, because that whole thing, man, uh, the transition from there to there, it was interesting because it, I learned something in that, that success is not a journey. I mean, success is not a destination. Right. Most people say, when I get that house, I'll be successful. When right. I get that car, I'll be successful. Right. It's a journey. And it's a transition of a bunch of different things because mm. it's like being on a roller coaster ride. You know, preludes, you got your ups. Then you got your downs because they're robbing you. But your record's getting played. Then you got a Columbia Records major label and you got a, you know, a glorious deal. Then you got your downs because they're not pushing your record. You know, exactly. and then you come into the jingle business and then you come to meet Bob Sinclair and the transition from all of that stuff to Cerrone. Cerrone uh, came about actually through Bob Sinclair. Yes. Because once he heard Bob Sinclair stuff, he's like, Barbara, get to me, DJ. Cerrone is a very nice uh, European man, but he's very French, very French. Of oh, course, uh, in other words, very little English. Yeah, very little English. So Barbara was sort of there to be the buffer to, to you know, communicate yes. the English. And um, we did the record. He was happy. Um, and I went with him to Saint-Tropez, France. Yes. And he had a gig on the waterfront, which his son was the DJ. And we performed, Barbara and I, in Saint-Tropez. And then we performed at this opera house in Paris. But there was a problem with that gig because they kept sending me the files on the Internet. And but it was sent in French, and so the translation with Google, they didn't have Google Translate right. back then. And I'm sitting up there going, okay, I'm hearing the, the the I'm seeing the thing, but the attachment wasn't coming, and I'm going on back and forth with these people for months. Now the gig is here, so I got to fly to Paris, and I just get the songs the night before. It was 15 songs, D. Oh wow! In the way in the world, I'm gonna learn 15 songs the night before. I didn't even know the song that I was singing the night before. I, I got the lyrics printed out, praying to God that this was. So what I had to do, and I didn't know he was shooting video. and it, This thing had almost like 5,000 people in this room. Mm -hmm. So what I did was what I could remember when I got on stage. I just held the mic up really high right. and faked my way through it. And they did a lot of editing. And, you know, my apologies to Sarone for not, that translation, you know, it got lost in translation. Right. Uh, and that kind of ended things not on a great note with us because he wasn't happy with that, you know. And so he kept moving on with Barbara, but I was kind of cut out of the loop, you know, after that whole thing. He wasn't too happy with it. But you know what? 
sometimes happiness, or in this case, unhappiness, brings you back full circle. You meet up to a gentleman who is definitely representing Long Island, mm -hmm. and you got back on the air, Mr. Yeah. Lenny Fontana. Let's talk about him. Man, I met Lenny through a friend of mine, Darren Sains. Darren uh, is a dear friend of mine. I call him my little brother also out in Long Island. And Darren was like, man, there's this guy who has a studio out here, producer. He'd been dying to meet you. I said, okay. So we go to Lenny's house. And I don't know if you've ever been to Lenny's house. Never been to Lenny's house, no. He's got a fabulous, like, 72-track board, SSL. No, Neve board, mm -hmm. old school. Beautiful in the studio. So his studio, you can tell he made some money because that board has to be at least half a million dollars. And right. all the outboard gear in there. But now... He couldn't downsize because it's already built into his house. He built the room right. around this board. Now, all you need is a laptop <laughs> and logic and just go. You don't even need the keyboards and the drum sets anymore. So he had to downsize, and he gets the laptop, and he, that's pretty much all he uses. He uses the board primarily for mixing now. Right. Um, so we hook up, and we did a song years ago called... Um, um, Oh, my God, I forgot the first single that we did. Free. I think it was Free. Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember the first single, but it didn't, it didn't work out too well. It didn't even get on the air. It didn't even get on radio. And so the second one, he said, okay, let's try this one. And what he said, let's try your old single, Music. So what we did was da-ba-da-ba-da-da-da. Right. Da-ba-da-da-da-da-da. Which we, is the new thing that they do now. They take the old background and make it more modern. Right, and he did that with Raise Your Hands Up. And we called yes. it Raise Your Hands Up. And it made some noise, and the clubs was playing it. And, you know, but the problem with that, it didn't make enough of an impact because most of the DJs that heard it was like, man, that's nice. That's D-Train, yeah. I want to do a remix. <laughs> you know? Yes. It wasn't like, leave that alone for a minute, and then maybe somewhere down the road do you think I can do a remix. That's respect. It was like... That's good, but it needs a remix. So that means you mean something's missing. That was the consensus amongst all the DJs. Top DJ, Jellybean Benitez, Louis Vega, you know, all of them. So we went back in the studio again, and then we come up with When, what, when You Feel What Love Has. Oh, yeah. And that was it. And when we did that one, I mean, people haven't really heard the full, full song because there's stuff he had to cut out. What happens is Lenny will tell you when we work together, I give him too much. Yeah. I bombard him with vocal tracks. So that way he's sitting there like a surgeon for like two weeks going, Jesus Christ, okay, I got to cut this. Oh, my God, I got to cut this. And he hates cutting it, but he got to cut it. But he always has stuff left on the floor. To if, if he had to do an acapella version years later, he has it. He has stuff that radio hasn't heard that the public hasn't heard and it's been wonderful because he and i are both spiritual people we get along he has a beautiful family shout out to kathy and sam samantha um and uh, he has a beautiful home out there in long island and he's a good family man you know he's one of those dudes he ain't up there cheating on his wife he go home to his wife he treats his wife like a queen and i learned a lot about being a man in this business from watching cats like Bashiri Johnson, who is a stand-up guy. Because you got so many cats who's slipping around that corner doing their thing. Yeah. You know, not to lie, I was just one of those cats. You know, uh, that, that's what wound up me in divorce court, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but 
I learned later on about watching guys, and I was always a humble cat, but I didn't know the thing about how do you keep this thing on lock and you focus on this one person thing until I met my, my new wife. And it was something that she fought for. We argued about viciously, but she was like, look, why do you have the need for me and her and her and her and her? Is your mind that small? You know, and, and you start thinking about it. Because what happens is when you got 50 ladies, man, you got 50 birthdays. Mm-hmm. Every last 50, one of them going to say, what are you doing Thanksgiving? <laughs> what are you doing at Christmas? Where are you going for your birthday? Can I take you out for your birthday? You can't spread yourself that thin. Exactly. And then you, 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 you wind up being broke. And I had a friend of mine, Char- uh, who was it? Not Charlie Colombo. Uh, dear friend of mine, um, I can't remember who it was, said, um, you could spend a lot of time, you could spend a lot of money on women. You could lose a lot of money chasing women, but you'll never lose women chasing money. Wow. That's deep. You never lose women chasing money because attraction comes to women through people in the arts. When they see a successful man or they see a man go, that goes to work, you know? When they see a person that does what you do as a DJ in the booth, that's a light to them. You you, you have a, like I've always had a job, but I've always had D-Train. Years later, I learned about doing both, having a creative side and a productive side because this finances my dream. Exactly. It finances my dream. And there may be people that look down on you and say, man, D-Train, go to an office five days a week. Yeah, but I'm doing what I love. I'm the musical director of a comedy station. I work with Rob Mathis once a year doing Christmas concerts with Vanessa Williams up at Purchase College. And then from this office, I sit here and get called to sing for the Pope. When he, Pope Francis, when he came to New York, Rob Mathis, my good friend, uh, who I've worked with for 23 years up at Purchase, calls me up and he pulls me into these gigs. He's like my big brother. Uh, He pulled me into the White House shows at the White House. From 2012 to 2014, I sang behind everybody at the Kennedy Center Honors. Um, And then I get called for the Pope. And that was like miraculous, singing at Madison Square Garden on the floor. And it wasn't a game between the Knicks losing and somebody else. It 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 was like thousands of Catholic priests, you know, from around the world sitting there. And over 50,000 people in the stands, and the Lion D was going from 34th Street down to, like, 29th, mm. all the way around from 7th up 8th Avenue to get into Madison Square Garden wow. just to hear the Pope. They had speakers outside. It was like Michael Jackson was there. So I did what I had to do, and I got out of there. And um, it was a wonderful opportunity. Uh, Looks great on the resume. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but now I'm focusing on uh, two different things. Um, I have a, a, a new record that's coming out. Mm-hmm. I believe that as an artist, um, you should explore different things. Yes. One of my principal brothers that have been more successful than me in the business was Prince. Um, before he died, I didn't know this, but Prince had been performing You're the One for Me at every last one of his concerts as the opening song mm-hmm. since 2006. And I find out about it, and I think 2013 or 14, I get a call in the night, and my, my wife goes, well, James, uh, the keyboard player's on the phone. Uh, he's calling you for Prince? I was like, 
Prince? I'm like, okay. So I pick it up, and I was like, Prince who? Prince Marky D? Prince what? Who? Which Prince? Wow. He said, yo, D, this is Morris, and I'm calling for Prince. We're getting ready to do Lopez tonight out here in L.A., and he wants your blessing. Prince wants my blessing? The Prince wants my blessing, D? I was like, you can tell him he can have that and everything else. Yeah, does he want some publishing? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yo. And he went on Lopez tonight. And he performed You're the One for Me with, you know, with his with the uh NPG and um and Sheila E. And it was wonderful looking at it. And it's on YouTube now, you can check it out. Um and he said, Twenty one nights, y'all. LA Forum, twenty one nights. Now I'm thinking to myself, he is not gonna sing You're the One for Me for twenty one nights in a row at LA Forum. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. He performed You're the One for Me. 21 nights at the L.A. Forum. And I was like, that was it. I said, okay, I can die and go to heaven now. I'm good. You know, and our paths were starting to go like a magnet towards each other because I was drawn to his creative force because he didn't give a damn what nobody said. D, he just did what he wanted to do. He didn't care if radio wanted to play it. He didn't care if you wanted to hear it. He didn't even care if you liked it. Wow. You know, most artists are concerned, well, this has to be a hit. I want to be the popular right. one because popular, popularity in this business is based off your ego. Exactly. When you've been to the mountaintop, you lose that ego, especially when your career is waning and it goes back down. After that point, you learn the spiritual side of things and you just want to be creative. You want to touch somebody's heart because the difference that you make Ain't going to be reflected in the record stores. In America, we got rid of every record store that we had. Exactly, for the most part, yes. For the most part. We got rid of Tower. Right. We got rid of, um, uh, what was that? Uh, uh, oh, the one that was on 42nd Street. Um, it's an airline, too. Well, yeah, Virgin. Yeah. Virgin yeah. Superstores. Yeah, yeah. We got rid of the small record shops all around and the, the country. The Vinyl Mania. They got rid of Vinyl Mania. They got rid of every type of store that sold music. And the only place that you can buy music nowadays, if you don't find a novelty shop, like out in Hackensack that sells old albums, you might have Rock and Soul, which is an institution here in New York that never closes doors. You still have, um, you have A1 records where you, could, you might find a little bit of this and a little, bit, right. a little bit of that from all the labels, yes. But it wasn't as intense and immense in volume as Tower. Tower, you can find your cousin Jimbo's record on the shelf. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? You could go in there and find Timothy Wright's first album with the Celestial Choir. Exactly. It was bigger than Burdell's on Nostrand Avenue. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah, man, because that's where everybody in Brooklyn got their records. Burdell's down there on Nostrand and, and, um, and Herkimer Street. But you also got to remember when you had sheet music, right. you went to Colony Records and yep. everything. Yep, you went to Colony up there. That I, blew my mind because... Even working at this company, we used to go over there to get our music beds. Yes. You know, this is before the internet. So you couldn't download uh, instrumentals. You had to go to Colony to buy it. Mm-hmm. I never forget I went over there for the company to buy some music for one of the bed, music bits we were doing. Mm-hmm. And it was a Christmas store. I saw Christmas trees all through the store, dude. I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay, maybe they moved Colony next door. Maybe they moved to the next block. Gone. Gone, gutted, nothing but Christmas trees. I was like, oh, snap. So nowadays, the only place you have to buy your music is uh, Costco. And when you go to Costco and places like BJ's and Sam's Clubs and Barnes and Nobles, 
Barnes & Nobles, you primarily go there to buy books. You ain't going there to buy albums. Right. Any musical professional like yourself, yes. you ain't going to Barnes & Nobles to buy no doggone album. Right. And you ain't going to look for mine in no doggone Barnes because exactly. they ain't going to have it. Exactly. So it's like, where do you go? You go to the Internet. And the thing now is about controlling the Internet for yourself. The power is in the artist's hands. If you can control your social media and blow it up to like what Justin Timberlake did with Twitter, Instagram. I'm not that dude. Yeah. I have to hire somebody to do that because that's just too much damn information for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm saying yeah. I'm not going to be sitting in my office all day doing, I ate a sandwich. It was good. It was ham and cheese. <laughs> you know, I, I'm like, no, man, I, I got work to do. I got things to accomplish. The most that I'll do is go on Facebook, and I barely go on that. I just go on there to answer to see who wrote on Messenger. I'll write them back because I get exactly. some, sometimes I get gigs like that. A lot of people write me from Tokyo. You know, even after all the record deals were over with, I, uh, 2005, I put out a record in 2006. Mm -hmm. Um called 701 Franklin Avenue, mm -hmm. which was just more or less like demo songs right. that I had written. Um, I didn't take them to a big studio to get them really produced right. because my mom died in 05. So that kind of racked me, shocked me, and rocked my world. And I wasn't over it in 2006. And so I said, but I got to do this and put it out there. So I went to L.A., and me and my buddy Al Ramirez did it at Westwood One over there in Culver City, right. and we produced it the best we could and put it out there. And the three people that bought it right. <laughs> were from Osaka, Japan. Right. And it just went to show me that music is such a universal language. Mm -hmm. How is it that I put this record out over here in America and only people that purchase it is in Osaka, Japan? Right. So that just let me went to show me you got to do another one, do it the right way, because... You know, you music being the universal law of the land. Mm -hmm. Somebody needs to hear what you have to say, even if it isn't commercial enough for exactly. radio to play it. And so, in the end, in the, the long run, what I'd like to do down the road, you know, I'm putting things together. I want to have my own global radio station. Well, that means like sort of like when XM had their thing together, you right. want to do something like that. I want to do it even better. Um, I would like to have a radio station that goes from Abu Dhabi all the way to the United States because the satellites are already in orbit. Um, they have a co some company called BN Sports. Yes. Um, that's where all the people over here from the Latino com you know, community and those that are from Great Britain and Ireland, they watch soccer matches. They call them football, but we call them soccer. Right. Um, that's how they get all of those programming formats from this one family that owns BN Sports in Abu Dhabi. Right. They're looking for new radio content. They're oh, looking okay. for new television content. Oh, so I would encourage you yourself to look with them and see if they can get you a show on there and talk to them about doing, you know, music, house music and stuff. Because you could present a, a global house show where you got guys, because they do it all. House music is universal also. Yeah. All music is universal. The problem is, to me, that we gave it a title. We gave music a title. We said that it was R&B. We said that it was pop. We said that it was country. And we created all these titles and formats so that you are only going to listen to R&B. You're only going to listen to rock and roll. You're, rock and roll people don't listen to, uh, to hip-hop. It's a lie. 
Because if that was not if that was true, Stephen Tyler would have never hooked up with Run DMC. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Exactly. And those two worlds would have never merged. RZA would not be doing kung fu movies with the Chinese people in, in, in China. He would not be getting Mike Tyson on with Donnie Yen, man, exactly. and Ip Man. So uh, to say that those two worlds do not cross-connect cross and do not intertwine is a lie. That's what media wants you to believe so that they can still control you. It's the last bind that they have on people. People think that they need a record deal. They need a production deal. They need a... You don't need any company. All you need is your mind, your will, your purpose, your goal. That's it. You need it because your mind is going to show you which directed you need to go to. Your mind is going to help you write out your mission statement. Once you write your mission statement, you read that every morning before you leave to go wherever you got to go. I am. Greatest two words that God ever gave mankind was I am that I am. So when you leave, I am. What do you want to be? I am a billionaire. I am a trillionaire. I am in my own billion-dollar home. I am driving my own, you know, Rolls-Royce car. Those are the things you have to say to yourself. What happens is I'm learning about universal energy. I've learned about, you know, spiritual energy with Christ. I grew up in the church. And in the church, it's a religious format, being Pentecostal. The closer you are to God, the broker you are. If you get sitting in church with $2 in your pocket, you know you need to go to work tomorrow and use that $2 to get on the train. And the pastor says, well, I don't care if it's your last. Get online and God's going to bless you. The, half, the last part of that is true. God is going to bless you. But if you give your lash, you ain't going to be able to make it to work tomorrow. And I got to see what the preachers around the country, not the bad-mouthed preachers or the church, but that's the format that they, they give. Give everything you have to the church. Bless the man of God, and you will be rewarded. God is up there. And if you're not good, it's almost like Santa Claus. You're going to go to hell. Exactly. And I never believed that because I believe God gives man free will. He gives you your own mind. So whether you're good or bad, whether you're going to rob that brother on the corner or whether you're going to bless that brother on the corner, it ain't got nothing to do with God. It got everything to do with you. If you're hungry, you're going to steal. Why? Because you want to eat. It's just that simple. They look for kids on the corner. They tell them, why are they selling drugs? Because you took away Job Corps. You took away manpower in the African-American communities. You know, when we was kids, D, from 15 on up, we had a job in the summer. We looked forward to working because that's where we can get our own little money and go down to Broadway and Nassau and buy our clothes or go down to Delancey Street and buy our gabardines and, you know what I mean, all that stuff. You took it away. Now, what happens to the kids in the projects? What happened to the kids in Brevoort? What happened to the kids down there, downtown Brooklyn? No place to go. Summertime. I ain't got money to go to the pool. Mommy's working, but she got to keep the lights on. Dude on the corner told me if I sling this rock, well, I only got to deliver it to three places, but now I got to wear a gun. And it escalates the provisional violence that you put in our community. All of that stuff, you put it in our community. Right. AIDS isn't an epidemic that came from out of the sky. It was something the scientists said, okay, Look at this group of people. Let's do a little test over here. Mm. Let's test it, out. test it out on rats. And then, you know, crack. 
Wasn't something that the government just found falling out of the sky. No, they put it into communities. People don't realize when you get those surveys that they ask you for, and this is another thing that I didn't know. I don't mean to be conspiracy theory, but when I had five kids, and I, I had five kids, and we lived in Long Island, I started getting these people calling and asking surveys, what kind of cereal does your kids like to eat? What kind of television does your children like to watch? Where do you shop? What kind of clothes do you like to buy? And these are surveys that come to you online and in your community. What there is is scientists, and it hasn't been proven yet. Mm -hmm. So this may neither be here or there, but scientists have been putting stuff in the food in certain communities to test out their theories. They've been doing this since the 50s. That's why you see people acting crazy sometimes. It ain't because of something that they just all sudden woke up one morning and they was crazy. No, it's things, they're running tests on us. They're running tests in different communities. You know, if you notice in the Latino and African communities uh, in Brooklyn, the sad thing about our people as a people, we don't own nothing. My daddy said ownership is 100%. You got to own it. If you're going to die, make sure you own something. Own a house, own, a, own some real estate, own some stocks, own something that you can leave for your family. Because most of us leave here and we don't own nothing. Ain't nothing for our kids. There's no history for our grandparents. If you go into the average black American home, you don't see pictures all on the walls of your great-great-grandmother, that one that was a slave, that one that was up in 1927. It don't go back that far. It might go back to your grandmother and your great-grandmother. Past that, we got to go to Ancestry.com. You know, our ancestry is lost. Exactly. And so we start thinking, well, I'm an African-American. They could keep that Africa stuff. I ain't come from there. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. And you didn't come over here coming through Ellis Island. <laughs> you came in here on another ship that went around Ellis Island and went to Virginia and went through the backwoods, and they made you walk to this farm, whipping your behind all the way. So the reality of where we come from, when you get to the age that we are now, you realize I'm a black man in America. What are my challenges? What are my grandson's challenges? What is he going to face? Because by the time I'm dead, they'll be flying cars. Exactly. By the time we leave here, man, there's going to be cars flying. There's going to be a whole bunch. There might be people flying to work. There might be traffic, all types of things. You know, cell phones and all the things that we use now that we call new Macintosh and, you know, Apple. Thing in the past. They've already got fl flexible omitted lighting electronic diode, which is the screens that bend, that you see the television screens that bend. You see them all in Times Square and circular, all different types of shapes. That's where we're headed. They're going to be able to take your cell phone and turn it into a credit card. And they've already got it for your wrist on your watch. I discovered that technology back in 95. I went to Japan, and they had arms. Uh, Casio had a watch where you could take digital pictures. Yes. In black and white. I, and it was only $65. I brought them home and brought my sons, you know. They've created such advancements in technology in Japan. And I have to say they're one of the leaders. They, they got us by a mile, man. And we got to play catch up. Wow, that's amazing. So to close this down, mm -hmm. which has been a, a very, very intense, happy, <laughs> in-depth interview. No more than words can say. What's going on with you next as far as tourists concerned? 
Well, you know, this summer was a busy summer. You know, I've been to Geneva, Switzerland, did the festivals over there, um, did Harlem Week. I did, um, you know, Caesar, um, Harris Casino. I've been busy this year doing a lot of session work. Um, I did another record with Bob Sinclair, his 1975 album. He has a new album coming out where he does the music of 1975. And all he wanted me to do was sing a chorus on the song, and I did it and sent it back to him, so he was happy with that. And I love working with him. He's a really great guy. Uh, I've been focusing on just my music. I've done a new album, and I've been exposed through Rob Mathis and so many others and the Kennedy Center Honors and my work as a session artist working on... See, people don't know that I've done Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell. Oh, wow. I did Bad Out of Hell too. I did Bette Midler's album. I'm on the Aida album for Elton John. You know, I did Michael Jackson's Invincible album, Luther Vandross's Never to um, Dance With My Father album, uh, as well as so many other jazz artists. Um, so it's, it's, it's a journey that's seen me watch music from so many different angles that to say that I want to do my next R&B record is like putting myself in this room and saying, this is who I am and this is what I do. This isn't who I am. Because when you leave America and you get on a plane and go to Europe, you realize the world is round. It ain't flat. And you, you go to a country where people don't speak your language. You go to Japan and you go to the Big Buddha and you walk inside of it where the monks used to, play, used to pray six stories down. You realize that God was there. God is still there. So he's not only in that Pentecostal church on Brooklyn, but God had nothing to do with the rules that you made up, that if you do this, you're going to hell. If you do this, you're going to heaven. If you give me this much money, you'll be better off with Jesus. You know, I'm just saying, wow. reach over and touch your neighbor. You know, it, it's that type of ideology that keeps us from being one. And from traveling to Japan, not speaking the language, I learned that God was there. I, I was getting ready to do a concert on, in a Tommy city on the ocean. And this rainbow came after a long, hard storm in the morning. And it landed right in the ocean, right outside my window. And the ocean was right across the street. And I had felt like God, I felt like Moses when he was on that mountaintop, that God came down and said, this is who you are. This, you're my child and I love you. And in all that I am and in all that you are, I've created you. And I learned that, man, anything that I do, anything that I am, I am love. I am Christ. I am God. Because he said, I leave you with everything that I am. You have the same powers that I have. So if I got the same power that you got, then why am I running inside the building going, well, you know, Pastor, I need you to pray for me because I need healing. I'm not saying that he ain't got healing, but you got it yourself. All you got to do is stop eating them collard greens <laughs> and stop eating that fried chicken and the Kool-Aid at the church. You won't have high blood pressure. Start eating differently. Change your life. Learn that your, your, your circumstances and your situation, your convenience and your conviction do not live on the same block. They ain't even neighbors. Your conviction is what lives inside of you, and your convenience lives inside of you. You can choose which one of those win the race because your conviction will lead you to the top. Your convenience is like, okay, I'm here, I'm cool, and those are the people that settle. Those are the people that say, okay, well, I got a nice job and I'm going to retire. And they do what our teachers told us to do in America. See, most, I got a grandson now. 
So he's untouched by racism. He's untouched by all of these things. And now, all of a sudden, he's going to be, when all kids change when they turn four. That's the magical number, four. Why? Because that's when we send them to daycare. And they're influenced by all these other entities. Kids that curse. Kids whose parents abuse them. Kids who don't want to get an education. Kids who's mean. Kids who like them. Kids who don't like them. Teachers who like them. Teachers who don't like them. And then we're formulated all the way up through public school, to high school, through college. It's a regimen. Go to school, get a good education, get a good job, retire rich. Ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen. It'll happen for a few of us, but when you climb the corporate ladder, you ain't getting paid till you 70. I'm serious. You ain't going to make it unless you're working on Wall Street and you're one of them guys that's pounding the pavement as a stockbroker or one of those traders. You ain't going to make that million dollars before you're 50, 60 years old. That's why all them guys in the stock world, they're 21-year-old billionaires. How many guys are smart enough to know mathematics like that? Most of us work with our hands. Not down in the cats that work with our hands. The Bible says the poor you will have with you also. My job now at this point is to create music for the world to hear on a world stage so that the world can gravitate to me and I can gravitate to it. So when I leave, I've wrapped my arms around this world several times and I said, I love you in the biggest voice that I can. And then when I go, my spirit will live everywhere. That's it. Because they, you can go to Brussels right now. There's a coffee shop in Brussels owned by this brother and his sister. My picture's up on their wall three years in a row from different times that I came over to Europe. They flew to wherever I was to do what, to take pictures with me. So when you go to this coffee shop, I'm there. And I told my kids, wherever you go in this world, I'm there. See, the, the blessing for me is if you go to Japan, I can make a phone call. My boy Delmar's coming, yo. Take care of him. Make sure he's cool. You go to London, yo, my boy D's coming. Make sure he's cool. You go to Amsterdam, you go to Switzerland, you go anywhere. I pick up the phone, you go, D, I'm leaving, so-and-so, so, okay, where you, where you going to be staying? Make the phone call. You get off the plane, they're waiting for you. They're at the, they're at the airport. We're not, they're never, one thing about my European friends, they never leave you on your own. Americans can be flaky. Yo, man, I got to go to work, man. I ain't going out to JFK. I ain't picking nobody up. Man, I got to be at work at 9.30. Europeans are not like that. They're like, well, James, what time does your flight come in? At 8? Okay, I'll tell my job I'm going to be a little late today. They pick you up at 8, make sure you get your breakfast, get to your hotel, check you in, and they go to work. Mm -hmm. And they do what they got to do with their families. They may pick you up in the evening time. You eat anything, man? Okay, come on, man, we're going to take you to eat. It's not like that over here. And I, I learned the differences even in terms of the airport, going through customs. They're more laid back. They relax more. I went to Italy. I went to Portofino. I went to Lucca, and, and the city surrounded by a wall where they have a 1,000 Catholic churches. They take off in the middle of the day at 1 o'clock. And I'm like, is it the whole country going to lunch? Wow. <laughs> they just stop. They just stop. And they just go. And for two or three hours, they don't do nothing. They go home to their wife and kids. And they, if they want to open back up at 5, they do. If they don't, they don't. But the world has learned to stay stress-free, and we haven't. And, you know, with the president that we have, you just you, you pray to God every day that we make it out of this one alive without World War III. Wow, he's kept it real, y'all.
So let the folks know where they can find you on the net, man. I know people want to reach out and touch you, bro. Yes, uh, James D. Train Williams uh, at Facebook.com. And then also I have a D. Train Facebook page, which is a fan page, which is probably more feasible to reach me there simply because I can have as many people as I want. Yes. You know, Facebook limits you to 5,000, and I've maxed out already. You know, so I was like, now I got to start deleting folks, and they're going to be pissed. But, you know, you in Facebook, when you got 5,000 friends, do you really know who those 5,000 exactly. people are? Exactly. No. It's just that they hit you up as a friend and you want to expand your brand. See, those are for branding purposes so that when you put out something, all 5,000 of them get the memo. And that 5,000 turns into 10,000. That 10,000 turns into 20,000. So you keep that base of 5,000, but then on your fan page, you keep that current along with your Twitter and your Instagram, and you grow your business. You just grow it. And you... The, the reason to grow these businesses is to not, not look down on anybody. We're both successes in what we do. You're a success. I'm a success. But also the guys that's sweeping, sweeping the corner is a success. Because when life keeps you happy and you can go home to a wife and you got peace in your home, and you ain't got nobody, or you're a woman and you ain't got no man going upside your head, or you don't need no man for no money, you're good. Now, anything else outside of that, it's your ability to change that. It's your ability to say, you know what? I can grow. And that's where, where I'm at now. I can grow. I'd like to go back to school and get a mechanical engineering license, uh, degree. You know, I want to get a business degree. I want to get my, my guitar uh, musical degree, you know, in theory and learn music all over again. I stopped when I was 15 to play ball at Erasmus. Right. So I want to go back and, and learn how to read, how to write the music, how to do film scoring. I want to branch my tentacles out into film scoring, into acting, because I am all these things. I am more than what you see before you, and people will try and keep you as D-trained, a house music artist. He's right here for you. Whereas, and I have people tell me, just do another R&B record. That'll just put you right back on. And it's, and it's sad because these are people that I know and love, and to hear that come out of their face, I'm like, damn. You really don't know me either. You really don't know me. And until people hear interviews like what you're enlightening with, most of the world, see the white side of the world, the people up in Greenwich, Connecticut, they get to see me every Christmas. People that see me at the Kennedy Center honors, the ones that have money, they don't know about the black side of D-Train or the, the world side. I can't even say it's the black side because it's just people who go to clubs and dance music. Most of those people up there don't go to clubs. So they don't know nothing about you. You're the one for me and keep on that D-Train. They only know about the D-Train that's saying, he will raise you up on eagle's wings, you know. And you have two sides. And so that's going to be the title of my new album, Two Sides to Every D-Train. Oh, no, the name of the new album, I'll tell it here first. You'll be the first people to hear it. So the name of my new album is D-Train, The Other Side of the Tracks. And it's going to explore my, my music in listening to Peter Gabriel and working with Sting and working with Michael Jackson and working with people like, um, oh, man, uh, Carlos Santana, all of those guys. Um, when you work with people like that and get, are exposed to that, musically, you grow into that. Of you course. become that. You evolve into that. If I stay here, I won't evolve, and I'll die here. And... I've overcome many obstacles in my life, but it's not the one in outside. It's not your circumstance because seasons, I wrote a song called Seasons and Circumstances. 
Circumstances come in seasons. We all have days where we're rich and we got plenty of money in our pocket. Then we got them days where we paid like 40 bills and we broke as I don't know what. But we getting by. We surviving. We don't know that we swimming in the water and we making it. And when we get rich again, we're like, oh, man, that wasn't so bad. But what, what you find out is that you might have been on the Jersey side. Now you don't swim all the way to the Manhattan side. How are you going to get to Brooklyn? So you go through Manhattan on your prosperous side, and then you're down again. Exactly. But you're swimming again for your life. And you're swimming across that water. And next thing you know, you're at the Brooklyn Promenade downtown. Wow. That's the way life is. That's the way, you know, and once you focus on everything that you intend to have and intend to be at this stage in our life, we feel, we're doing double nickels now. Exactly. So I'm doing double nickels. I'm like, look, everybody that I know, and it's weird because our parents was this age when we was in Erasmus. Everyone that I know, not that I know, but the ones that I came up with in the business, Johnny Kemp, Colonel Abrams, uh, Oliver Sheetham, those cats, Jerome Priester from Secret Weapon, they're dead. And sometimes if I sit still, it blows my mind because it's just yesterday I might have been having a beer with this cat, you know. Yesterday we were running around Paris trying to hang out with people, you know what I mean? And you look back on those fun times and you say, how much time do I have left? You can buy clothes, you can buy cars, you can buy houses. The one thing that even the wealthiest person, including Donald Trump, Oprah Winfrey cannot purchase is time. It's the one thing you don't get back. And the one thing that is more valuable than money, love, or anything else on this planet. So what happens is choose your time wisely. If you're going to spend two hours a day in the gym, give it everything you got. If you're going to spend it reading a book, read and learn and absorb everything you can. Because time is the one commodity that once it's gone, we ain't getting 2017 back. It's August. We're getting ready to go into, we're getting ready to go into September. Summer 2017 is gone. We ain't going to get it back again. Whatever we didn't do, that's on the floor. We got to pick it up to, you know, September, make it happen. So everything in the beginning of my month, make it happen. And I write it down in a list. I want to be here. I want to move to California in January. January, top of my list. Get online. Look at the houses. Talk to real estate agents. Find out what type of house you got. You want solar? And I write it out, and you know, I want a solar heated home. I want a, a foreclosed home. So that way you don't have to spend a lot of money being that you're just getting out there. You may look around to another place and say, oh, I want to live there. See, you do small before you do big. It's just like they say you got to crawl before you can walk. You don't jump into a city and buy a mansion in L.A. Because then you buy that mansion, you're stuck with it. You know, you buy something small, condo, townhouse, and look around and learn to navigate the system, learn the landscape. Then you say, ah, I never heard about Altadena. Wow, I never heard about Chula Vista. What is that? Newberry Park? But that's not, that's not Beverly Hills, but it's beautiful. It's a beautiful family community. I could live there, and I could have exactly all the things that I want on my amenities list for a home. It doesn't take much to be happy, but a happy mind. You can make up your mind to be happy every single day. People talking about, man, this day started out whack, man. The bus was late. Oh, this was done. No, no. I can guarantee you, if they told you you had cancer this morning, you'd find the beauty in catching that bus. 
You'd find the beauty in looking at a child in a stroller. You'd find the beauty in driving your car, walking through a park, looking at a bird chirp on a, on a branch. You'd find it. So many of us wait till we're given that terminal sentence to find that. If you can find it within yourself beforehand, you're the richest man on the planet or the richest woman. He broke it down, science and all, gave you the backstory. He didn't hold no punches. He went straight chaser. He just came up and just told you what's going on and let you know what his journey was like as a teenager. Gave you the Erasmus story. Gave you the prelude story. He gave you the Columbia Records story. He gave you the after effect, how dance music came about with him. He also told you what doing the jingle thing, where that can take you and told you what life was all about, how he grew up in the church, how he became the man, how he was my friend, the brother from another mother. He let you know he's real. He's definitely relevant for those who really didn't know. And I want to thank my man, Mr. James D. Trey Williams, who took the time out of his busy schedule to let me up in here in the real, doing the New York City style. And I mean, y'all know who I am. It's your source for info from the minds behind the music, Mr. Delmar Brown with me, Mr. <laughs> with Mr. James D. Trey Williams. What more can I say? Thank you, my brother. I love you, man. You too, I love man. you, man. All day All day, all day, any day, man. Thank you very much.